Okay, here we are. We are in Chomish Devar, and we're doing the Parsha, and I will tell you what we do and what we don't. You're in only a Chomish Ritz class, by the way. Grab a Chomish Devar from the side, a Deuteronomy. Okay, the fact book, the fact blue ones have all the Chomashim, so we have everything together. Okay? If it says five books of Moses, that's it. Okay? Hmm? Good job. Everybody has a book. Yalla. Okay. Okay. We have one in Spanish. We have none in Russian. I'm sorry. Um, there are more. There are more. Up. Those blue, those brown books over there, there's a set. There's a box set. Yes, find the Deuteronomy. And I think up on the top that might also be, but we just need a chair for that. Okay, and there might be some of the little single books flying around there. There might be Deuteronomy's in the browns over there. Yes, are you down? Fantastic. What? Yes, you need just the Devarim for today. Okay, so where are we? Okay, okay, so I want to say what we do and what we don't do this class. Uh, first of all, it's super exciting to be learning together again. Some people I've learned with before, other people we haven't, but I love Parsha and I love teaching Parsha and I love learning with people who are going to engage with me. Okay, we are in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, it's the book of Devarim. We are at, we're in Parsha Shoftib, which is chapter 16, verse 18. That was my bar mitzvah. Parsha, good. So you know this very well. Oh, I'm using a long time. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I forgot to start it. Yeah, go. Shoftib, Shoftib, Shoftib. You got it. Okay. So let's find it inside. Yes, she she did. She did. She did it. Yeah, nice. Okay. Okay. So chapter 16, verse 18, we're in the book of Deuteronomy. We're our, oh, before we get into our Parsha, I want to just give a, a disclaimer about this class. Can I do this? I can see you. Sure. I'm sorry. I just, it's hard for me not to see people. I sort of see what's going on over here. Um, okay. Uh, the first disclaimer about this class is that we are unfortunately a very shallow class. Okay? Um, what, I, what, I, what we try to do is to give an overview of the whole Parsha, whatever Parsha is going to be read, um, in the upcoming Shabbos, we want to get an overview of the whole parsha and some insights into some of the stuff. The problem is that we come across things like we want to. If we were to go into depth into every single thing, we literally would go no place. So we are very shallow, and I apologize in advance that we are going to skim over some things and deal with other things. But that is, we raise more questions than we answer than we answer often. Okay. With that said, where are we? We're in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Torah. Moshe, it is Moshe's, it is Moshe's swan song to the Jewish people. He starts speaking to them on the first day of Shvat in the year 2488 in creation. They're at the banks of the Jordan River and he's going to pass away on the seventh of Adar, which is 37 days later of that same year. Okay? So the whole book is said in 37 days. In the in the wide in the widest count, according to some opinions, it was said in one day, some opinions said in a week. The longest time time that we have is, and it took thirty seven days. And you could generally break up the whole chumash of De, of, of Deuteronomy in three chunks. Okay, you have the first three Torah portions, Devarim and Beth Hanan and A, where Moshe is basically going over their history. Giving them some, you know, giving them some, you know, telling off, talking to them about the Jewish fatal flaw, um, which is we have real issues with time. In case you're wondering if it's like a new thing, it is not at all a new thing. We have, we want it now. We want it on our time frame and the place of trusting in God and saying, there is a plan. He has your back. He has this figured out. That's our issue. Like in the shortest version, that is our issue as Jewish people. We want it right here, right now. And if, it, for example, they go to the desert, there's no water for three days, and they start to complain. Where's the water? Where's the water? Now, can we all agree that three days in the desert with no water? Not so fun. But could we also agree, did God take us out of Egypt to kill us in the desert with no water? Or was the test to say, 
Will you trust me? You trusted me enough to follow me blindly into the desert. Will you trust? And I was like, I know I forgot something. Right? That isn't what happened. But because this, this is our test, and it comes up many, 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 many times. Anyway, the first three Torah portions in the book of Deuteronomy, basically Moshe covers history and says, that wasn't so good, that you could have done better, and that we need to pay attention to in the future. Okay, the next three Torah portions where we are right now, which are the last week's Torah portion, the, part, the Torah portion of Re'eh, this week of Shoftim, and the next week of Kitetzei, are chock-a-block with mitzvahs. There are, there's, no, there's no real storyline going on here, and we're going to do this in a second. It is, there are so many mitzvahs in the Torah portion, it's like, that's what's going on here. He's, Moshe's, some mitzvahs we're going to get. For the first time, some mitzvahs he's going to review, but it's mitzvahs and mitzvahs and mitzvahs and mitzvahs and mitzvahs and mitzvahs. Do, 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 do this, do this, do this. Okay. The last four Torah portions of the book of Deuteronomy are really Moshe looking forward, helping people look forward to their transition into the land of Israel and what that's going to be like. He's giving them some, a little bit more, what's called tochacha, a little bit of rebuke, a blessing, and sending them off. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moshe's going to pass away and we're going to transition into a whole new set of leadership. Okay, so we, we are right now in the middle of this three, this trilogy, Parshiot, of mitzvot, mitzvot, mitzvot. Now, really what I like to do is to give an overview of the Parsha. When you have a Parsha that has like 47 mitzvot, that's a little bit hard. So what I'm going to ask everybody to do is to randomly open up a part in the, in the Parsha of Shoftim. It goes from chapter 16, verse 18, and it goes till... Chapter 21, one second, let me get you a verse. Chapter 21, eh, verse 9, okay? Find me a mitzvah, something that catches your eye, something that's weird, something that's interesting, something that's different, something that's unexpected. We'll take three minutes, everybody find us a mitzvah, find me a mitzvah, and then we're going to do a round robin. Huh? No pages at all. Uh, who has the blue books? What page are we on? 1029. 1029 until what page? 102. Yes. 1025 to 1029. 1025 to 1029. I think, yes? Yeah, 1025 to 1029? Possibly. Yes. We go from 1024 to 1044. Okay? Find me a mitzvah. And then we're going to just do a quick round robin and everybody's going to give us one mitzvah. Yes. Everything counts for a mitzvah. Is it telling you what not to do? Yes. 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 Yeah, mitzvahs are yes to do and not to do. You have to have more thou shalt not than the, thou shalt. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to take a couple of minutes. Everybody find me a mitzvah. No? Just by not. You can read in the English. You can read in the English. You can. Read, you don't have to look at the Hebrew. You can look in the English. You don't have to look at the commentary. You just have to like kind of find me a mitzvah. Just by not slaughtering an animal with a blemish, I'm getting a mitzvah. By not. Correct. Correct. Sitting here, not doing anything. Uh, maybe I don't know. Let's think. Well, by sitting here and not murdering anybody, you're definitely getting a mitzvah. <laughs> you know that one I know for sure. Okay, so let's take a couple minutes. If you're ready, look up so I see your eyes and I know you're ready. You ready? Got a mitzvah? Thank you. Find a mitzvah. Now there's a lot of mitzvahs here, so I want you to find something that's that strikes you as whatever, interesting, weird, different, unexpected. It could just be one. Of course it could just be one. But I'm just saying, like, if you flick through a couple of pages, you're like, oh, that's really weird. I, that's okay. I find, I find that a lot, by the way, in Torah. You're like, oh, wow. Hmm, didn't realize that was there. Okay? You're good. I have a question about that. Yes. Should I say it? We're going to go around and we're going to hear from everybody. Okay. Yeah. For this one, it's Yeah. Does that mean that you can do that? No, no, you cannot. Well, it's a prohibition. Like, you can't do it, but it's a, it's a possible thing. Yes. Yes. Right? I didn't know that was there. Okay, are we ready? Are we ready? Are we ready? Okay. Okay, ladies, stick with me. Yala, we're going to do a round robin. If you have not yet found a mitzvah, listen with half an ear and point out with the other half an ear. We're going to get anybody who wants to start. And we're going to round robin, give us a chapter and a verse so we can all follow along with a mitzvah.
Lindsay? Yeah, Lila. Lila? Yeah. Okay. Are you also Lindsay? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Lila, but okay. Now we will. Uh, chapter and verse. Uh, okay. Uh, chapter. Chapter. Okay, chapters, by the way, chapters and verses are not Jewish in origin, which is why you'll have a Torah portion that opens up in the middle of a chapter, right? Books don't start in the middle of a chapter, unless you're some really progressive writer and then whatever. But then, then you're making a statement. But, but uh, chapters are, are a division that was made by the monks, and we've kept the division of chapters and verses just because it's convenient, but it actually is very, very much uh, t- not, it's not super Jewish. So our a Torah portion is Jewish, and where a person gets called up to the Torah is a Jewish breakup. But this is so we're going to just use it for identification purposes. You found it? Um, I mean, it's so fourteen and twenty. What so it? this is yeah. chapter seventeen. Oh, seventeen. And which verse are you? Fourteen to twenty. Okay, chapter seventeen, verses fourteen to twenty. There you go. Which one? No, all the chapters and verses are the same. Chapters and verses are the same. Chapter 17, verse 14. Read for us. Right. Okay. Okay. This is, this is where the thing is. Oh, do you want me to read it here? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because the bottom's commentary. Stick with us. Stick with us. I see. Um, when you come to the land that Hashem, your God, gives you and possesses it and settle in it, and you will say, I will set a king over myself like all the nations that are around me, you shall... Surely set over yourself a king whom Hashem your God shall choose. From among your brethren shall you set a king over yourself. You cannot place over yourself a foreign man who is not your brother, only he shall not have too many horses for himself, so that he will not return the people of Egypt in order to increase horses. For Hashem has said to you, you shall no longer return on this road again. I mean, how long do you want me to go? Because, like, Okay, now, okay, we have, we have a couple, we have a couple of roads. We have a, we, okay, so what do we have here? In short, we have the desire to appoint a king, and so Hashem saying the, 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 the requirements for a king, and there's a lot of stuff that the king is allowed and not allowed to do. We're going to come back to that, so I'm going to, we're going to get back to that. Do you okay. have a question? Is that where Malach Mashiach comes from? No. Or is that, no. Like, this is going to be the king? When, when Mash, the king? Uh, Mashiach will be the king, but it, for us, it, uh, just for, I'll touch on it for a second, it's very hard in 2022 to say, a monarch is a good thing. <laughs> we, we haven't had really good experience with that. So it's not something that we're like, oh yeah, we want to have a king again. Um, but a Jewish king and the way Torah describes what a king is supposed to be and not supposed to be, that's a whole different conversation. Um, so we're going to get back to the king conversation because even though it's not super relevant today, I think it is still super relevant. So if I don't get back to it, make sure I do. Okay. Okay, Lizzie, what do we have? Chapter right. and verse. Uh, chapter 20, verse 19. Chap- book, chapter 20, verse 19. And in the blue book, it's on page... 1043. Okay. okay. All right. When you besiege a city for many days to wage war against it, besiege it, do not destroy trees by swimming an axe against them, for from it you will eat, and you shall not cut it down. It is the... Uh, is the tree of the field a man that it should enter the siege before you? Only a tree that you know is not a fruit tree that you may destroy and cut down and build a bulwark against the city that makes war with you and so let's conquer. Okay. So what do we have over here? Three things. Preservation of trees. Preservation of trees. Beautiful. Which trees can we cut down? The non the non-fruit trees, and in what context is this mitzvah given to us? When you're waging war. When you're waging war. Okay, so I think that's three very, very important and interesting things. Again, war is a terrible thing and blah, 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 but let's for a second say, in the context of war, God is still saying to us, there's a moral line here that you cannot cross. And part of that is that a fruit tree that people could be eating from you can't just cut it down and make a battering ram out of it. Like today when you have like, you know, digital warfare, like it's a whole different conversation. But once upon a time, they actually needed the supplies that were there, whether we're going to starve out the enemy, whether we need the stuff to burn wood. There's actually a prohibition against cutting down a fruit tree. Okay. And it comes in the context of war where you say, hello, we're at war and we're fighting and killing all this stuff going on. Who cares about a fruit tree? God's like, I do. 
and you should also. Okay, which I think is very, 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 very powerful. That's one thing. The other thing that, that um, is brought here is that it uses the comparison that is the tree like a man that you're, like, we're fighting the trees? Like, why are we fighting the trees, right? And this expression, ki ha'adam etz is a tr- is an expression that you find a lot in Hasidic, Hasidic and, in, and in general Jewish thinking. And the, they cut, they sort of cut that part out and they say that a man is like a tree in the field. And we have lots of comparisons between trees and human beings and it's sort of a, a cut out of this longer picture, which is, it's a very interesting conversation um, but I, I don't want to hold that thought. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm talking to myself. Hold that thought and come back to it in a second because I want to, the third thing that's brought here and is the, is the, the prohibition against wasting. The prohibition of bal tashchit, that you're not allowed to waste, is brought here in the context of cutting down the fruit trees for a war situation. So we're having... Is that your mitzvah? No. What? Uh, no, I, I oh, your question. question. Okay. Um, does that mitzvah go into, um... Which mitzvah? We mentioned three here. The mitzvah of, of not, of not being wasteful. Okay. Does that go into, um... Yes. Somebody who's checking a restaurant. What is it called? Meshkiach. Yes, meshkiach. Would that be... I don't understand what the question. I don't understand the question. Because restaurants throw out a lot of food. Well, the kashrut, but like, you're talking about Mashkiach specifically, just throwing things out, it could be because of like the kashrut reason. And either way, you could... Are you... Are you I'm saying, at the end of the day, when they have all their food that they can't use because of... Because of whatever reasons. Codes for the right. state, that whatever, is the Mashkiach... It's, it's not the Mashkiach's job. job. It is not the Mashkiach's job. It's very interesting that in Israel, there is like an ethical hashkacha that some restaurants get that has to do not with the kosherness of their food, but the kosherness of their behavior. And that includes ethical treatments of workers and uh, what they do, that's all that kind of stuff. I don't know, what, I don't know practically speaking how it works, but I do know that there is such a thing going on. Um, one of the, I'm gonna mention, because Noah brought this up, one of the really amazing organizations in Israel is a project called Leka Israel. Um, which is basically food, food uh, repurposing and they go to restaurants and wedding halls where there's food that's totally good and totally fine, but because of codes, they can't reuse it and they take it and they have kitchens and places where people who don't have food can actually get food. So I want to just give a shout out because I think that's... I, I want to I I back up for a second also though, Noah, because it's very easy to point the finger at a restaurant and say they shouldn't... But one of the things that we want to try to do in this class is to look in and say, in my life, where am I wasteful? Because it's easy to say, they shouldn't be wasteful. It's terrible for them to be wasteful. But when we go shopping, when we buy things, where is our place of, uh, of being wasteful? Asha, uh, hello, who's going to go get themselves a plate like I talked about before? <laughs> um, but, but that's one thing. And also... In our resources, in our energy, in our brain cells, in our body, we're not we're not junkyards either. So, like all that place of not being wasteful, I think there's a place that we it's, we need to look in and say, where am I being? You know, where am I? Is this a value that I'm holding on to? Not just saying, oh, it's good for everybody else to do. Um, I want to give one one thought on a person as as uh, the comparison between humans and trees, um, uh, and Sort of one more, you know, like we talk here, again, because we talk about the idea of, in the context of war, and the context of not, you know, why is this tree guilty for having to be, in, you know, being in your space, and why are you doing it, but the phrase, we do, the, the Torah is drawing this comparison, and we can find three very specific, um, oh man, I'm losing the word in English. Commonality, commonalities, connections. I don't know. I'm losing the word. Whatever. I'll explain it then see. Right? A tree has roots. A tree has a branch. And a tree has fruit. There's other parts of a tree also. There's not a a botanical lesson, but it's just for general things. We have the tree. We have the roots, which you don't see, but they are, in fact, what nourishes the tree. Okay? And the the, Pirkei Avodah talks about the difference between a tree 
that has many, many roots and very few flowers and versus the one that has, what did I just say? Very few, yeah, very few things and lots of, or the one that has lots of flowering but very few roots. If you have, if you do not have solid roots, then the first one that comes is gonna topple you over, okay? So that's the roots. The second thing that we have is a trunk, which is the, the body of the tree, and then we have the fruits. And so we talk about in a person, the thing that is least hidden but totally nourishes a person, what are our roots? Our belief in God. And the more we develop that and put those roots down and you know, not just, it's interesting, we had a student once and she said she was in Florida and the city had planted a whole bunch, like a whole row of different kinds of trees. The first storm came, half the trees went flying and the other half stayed. And she asked her teacher, who was a, she, was in a, she, had, she had a botanical teacher, and she said, and the teacher said that half of the trees have roots that went straight down, and the other had roots that went out. They went down and out. And the ones that were straight down, the first wind that came, just like, not like a little wind, but like a really, like a storm thing, pulled them all out. And when we talk about our faith in God, it's not something that anybody sees or anybody should see. It's like definitely not something, it's a root. It's down there and yet it's nourishing us in such a deep way and we have to have it down and spread out so that it's totally reaching all different areas of our life. The body of our tree is the mitzvot that we do and what is our, what is, what, what's holding us up? And the fruit is how we impact the other person, right? Because trees, unlike humans and animals, they can't move from place to place. So how do they, how do they repop, how do they, uh, they don't repopulate, they, whatever, I don't remember what the word is. How do they get more trees? They create a beautiful packet, what? How you, they have seeds, right? How do you get the seeds to move? Well, first, so what does the tree do? It says, what is the main point of this fruit? The, for the tree's point of view is the seed, because the seed ensures that there will be another tree. But how do we get the seed to go any place? We make a beautiful fruit, and it smells delicious, and it's beautiful to look at, and somebody comes by, a person or an animal, and says, ah, and they take it, and they eat it, and they throw the pits away. And those pits then put down roots and start again. So in our lives as well, there's this place where whatever it is that we're doing is great, but how are we making a difference in the world? And is our behavior somehow going to impact another person? Is it going to be another tree? And part of how that's going to happen, like, yeah, sure, you could just, like, have like, this is what you should do, and you should be like this preachy, annoying person. Not very effective, just saying. But if, we, if our behavior is beautiful and smells delicious and is, it, and is appealing to another person, then they will perhaps want to taste what it is that we have and say, oh, that's really nice. And then they also end up with a seed, and then they plant another tree. Okay? So that's, just wanted to share that analogy. Stella. Give us a mitzvah, chapter and verse. Um, also, by the way, if you don't interrupt me, I will keep talking to you. But if you have questions or comments, make sure that I, you catch my eye or you just speak up. Um, so I chose chapter 17, verse 18. 17, verse 18, okay? We're back to the king. That's still with the king. Chapter 18. Chapter 17. It shall be that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself two copies of this Torah and a book from before the Kohanim and the Levine. Um, basically, kings being commanded to have to write to Torah scrolls, and like, part of this is because um, it says later on, like part of this is to make sure that like when he's the king, he's still like he's not just a king; he's also Hashem's servant to help like guide and lead the Jewish people. Right, and if you see the next verse, actually continues and says <laughs> that one stays with him. And one gets put into storage. Mm-hmm. It means the person who is in, in, Jew, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish biblical life, the king had absolute power. Right? And what do we know about absolute power? It, it corrupts absolutely. Unless you have something in place 
to stop that from happening. And the king had to actually, this is not even a, this is not even a Torah scroll. Ever seen a Torah scroll? Okay. Even if you get a small one, you got to carry it around all the time. One was on his person all the time to remind him, like Stella said, I'm not the boss. I'm here as a servant of the people to God. As much power as the king had, there is also that place of like, eh, watch it. You know, you're not, you, you are the biggest boss here on this country, on this planet, right? Like this country right now, but you're not the biggest boss. And the proof is that you're carrying around the Torah scroll with you all the time. And you have a backup in your treasury with your jewels and your gold and your everything. You have another Torah scroll so that you always have this with you. And it's a place of, the Torah says to humble him and to remind him to fear Hashem. But I want to say for all of us, because so far we had two king references already. So I want to I touch on this for a second because I'm watching the clock and I'm getting nervous. Um, all of us, are in charge of something. We might not be kings of the country, or, you know, like we might not be. We might be, and I just don't know about it, and that's also fine. Um, in the best case scenario, we are for sure kings of ourselves. We rule ourselves, we are rulers of ourselves, we control our behavior, we control our actions. But we also have people in our sphere of influence, whether we, people at work, people in a school, of family members, like we, we have a sphere of influence, and in that place, it's very important when we're in a place of giving, because that's what the king does, he gives to the people, that we have to also say, where am I in this picture? Like, I, I have all this stuff, I'm so awesome, or I'm given the gift of being able to share this, I'm given the gift of being able to give this, and for us to ourselves to say, what is our checklist or a checkbox to say how do we keep ourselves in a place of focus that it's not about me it's not about how much power and how much i can exert over the other people only by learning my 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 little uh my little uh rant for right now is that we have to make sure that we have in our day all the time we must learn we must learn and because that's how we stay connected to what our source is and what our purpose is and it reminds us that we aren't just doctors and lawyers and artists and, and merchants. We are bigger than that. And more, we are that and more. And so therefore, it's, you know, if we, if we, just like the king had to walk around with a Torah scroll all the time, it's something that we also, and it's so available. We have podcasts and we have, you know, classes online, things available to you, and we should make good use of it. Okay. Lior? Lior? Lior, okay. Yeah. Lior. Chapter um, verse. Like same as what we were just doing, but actually just before. Okay. I just read another that's so paradoxical. It says, and he shall not have too many wives, so that he, so that his heart not turn astray. That just like boggles my mind. At which point? At which point? At which which part of it? The fact that it's saying, and he shall not have too many wives. Right. Right. Because we're like because that will turn him astray, but like. Right. Yeah. So, so the three, the three main, the, so the three main, the three main prohibitions. So the three, the three main prohibitions that the king has is he's not allowed to have too many horses, he's not allowed to have too many wives, and he's not allowed to have too much money. Those are. Does the Torah state like how much is too much? So it's interesting. On wives, it does. Uh, yeah. Wives, it does. No, what, what, what would you think is too many wives besides two? Okay, we all agree two. We all agree two is too many wives. But next. <laughs> Fifteen? Seven? Give me a number. Three. Three. Biblical times. We're talking biblical times. We're not talking 2022. Okay, like 140. 40. 5. 100. 100. Yes. 70. 7. Okay. Solomon had too many wives. Seven. How many wives did he have? Solomon had a thousand. Oh, are you talking about I think he had a thousand. Um, okay, the Torah says that a, a king is not allowed to, a Jewish king is not allowed to have more than 18 wives. Ooh. I know, I should have guessed that. 18 wives. Um, I, 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 all of us women were like, that is way too many. But, um, but uh, yeah, there, you know, remember that wives in biblical times were also, they weren't necessarily your soulmate. They were, they were, Countries combining, there were there was lots of reasons that was going on, and at the same time, at the same time, Torah is acknowledging that 
for whatever reason this marriage happened, there's influence going on in both directions. And the wider you spread that, the more this most powerful person is in a, pers- in a position of being, is of being affected negatively, and that's not so good. You know, also just like, could you imagine like the king who has like the whole country on his head, the logistical juggling, it just seems like a bad idea on both sides for, for the husband and for the, for the king and for the wife. It just like, it just sounds like a bad idea on so many levels. Um, but Torah says, yeah, too many wives. They don't, the Torah doesn't actually give, um, the Torah doesn't actually give a number of horses but if you take a look, it's interesting. It says, um, if you look in verse uh, 16, it says he can't have many, too many horses. And then he gives a reason, so you don't go back to Egypt. Um, and then it says you shouldn't have too many wives, so they don't, take his, they don't divert his heart. And it says, And gold and silver he should not have a lot of. And ma'od is, is an interesting word. And it's interesting, it's only here. It doesn't say it with the wives, it doesn't say it with the horses, it says it with the money, ma'od, that there's something so excessive about the money, more so than whatever number of wives he has or as many, many of horses. And one of the things that the Talmud tells us about money is that it is by definition endless. The, the Talmud gives us, a, it uses the expression, mi sheyesh lo mea whoever has 100 wants 200. The nature of money, you have... Have you, let's say, have you ever met somebody who's like, I got enough money, I'm good to go? Or it's like, eh. It's always like, right? And so the Talmud says, whatever you have, you want double. If you, want, if you have 100, you want 200. That means somebody who has $5 million, they need 10, or they're just not happy. And, huh? And so the question that we want, we want to, again, because we're not all kings, probably, for to the, to the best of our knowledge at this point. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? And the question is, we have this power of excess, okay? When you look at it in money, it's a really bad thing, you know? I, want, I have this much money and I want more money. And the, and ta- the Talmud tells us, you are always going to want twice as much as what you have. So I guess my blessing to all of us is that we should channel that excess into something good. Can we channel that need for so much from the ode into loving people, ma'od, doing good, ma'od, learning, ma'od? Where do we put that, where do we channel that, that need to have that much excess and say, I'm going to do this excessively? Now, we have to be careful because, you know, ice cream, vima'od, that's not really, that wasn't what I was talking about so much over here, right? So we're not, you know. But can I pick something good and say, I would like to be able, to, I would like to be blessed to do this so much. And that's what my blessing, for, my first blessing for all of us is that we should, we should tap into something and do it, do it in an excessive way, but it should be something good and healthy that builds us and builds the people around us. Thank you. Um, chapter 16, verse 19. 16? Right at the start. 16, verse 19. Yep. Okay. Don't do bribes. In fact, the Talmud tells us you cannot even accept a bribe for a righteous thing. For to, 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 to pass judgment righteously. In fact, the Talmud tells us a story of somebody, uh, of one of the sages who was uh, who had a standing order with one of the farmers in the local area, whatever. And um, I guess before Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, you needed to have somebody deliver the food to you. And this farmer always used to bring the food, the delivery to him on whatever, pick a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, let's say Wednesday. And one week he came to him on a Tuesday and the rabbi asked him, why did you come to me on Tuesday? He said, oh, because I have a court case with you tomorrow. So I figured I would just bring your order the day early. And the rabbi recused himself from the case and he considered that bribery something that he got on a regular basis, but because the timing was changed, he said, I can't, I, that's, that's, that, that's, he, he, that counts as bribery. Yeah, yeah, well, one could argue that it's not. It is. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly.
So you go to a restaurant and you're not able to get seated right away, but your dollars. date hands the guy 20 bucks and then you get seated, is that okay? But this is, this is different. This, this is, is I'll tell you, I'll tell you, the, I'll tell you the differences. That that might be that might be for like you know smoothing the path and I whatever that might be how the world works. But the question and this is one of the things that one of the things that this is highlighting is two litigants come before a judge. We have to treat them fairly. In fact, it talks about you can't have one standing. We can't have one standing and one sitting because there's this place where you're showing favoritism. You can, and as soon as you as soon as you're showing favoritism, it, the judgment is off. Even if you end up coming with the, to the right thing, but it's coming from a bad place. It's not coming from it's not coming from a clear place. And bribery is one of those things that is so insidious, and it is so. This story with the rabbi who who didn't take the case because he got the the delivery the day early. The the Talmud continues that he said he was sitting in the court because he was he's part of that's where he was, and he felt himself coming up with reasons like mitigating circumstances for this person he wasn't even on the case he like it was a total and he's like how powerful is that it's it's his he paid for it it's it's he just came a day early and already he found himself sort of looking at the whole situation differently so the the place of judgment and the place of a judge uh and that absolute fairness that we need to have i want to throw that back at us and how do we look at other people and do we look at some people and we give them a pass? And do we look at some people and what, no matter, when they open their mouths to say hello, we're like, whatever, they're out to get us, you know? Um, we, we, we all, we shouldn't. None of us should be judgmental and blah, blah, blah. But I wanted to say that we live in an age of marketing. And if we think marketing doesn't work, then we are living under a rock. Marketing works. But from our point as the judge in the case, how much can we try to get to that place of objectivity and fairness and to give people, not judge them based on anything external and be able to like really see each person and each event for what it really is without the that, whatever that word is for that, right? It's, it's hard. And still, I think it's so important to at least try. Instead of just throwing up our hands and saying, we can't do this, let's at least try for that. Okay, no. Uh, give us right. chapter and verse. Chapter 19, verse 21. 1921. Okay. You lost it? Yeah, I for an eye. Yeah. Yes. We don't actually do that. We don't poke people's eyes out if they poke people's eyes out. Okay? The Torah is very clear that it's, we're talking about monetary, monetary payment for different... Uh, it's, it's the end of... In biblical times, though. They didn't. It they was, didn't. It was only monetary, but... Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to show you that 21 is the... Is the um, it's a continuation of a, few chap, of a few verses. Okay? It starts with... Uh, with um, People who are trying to get other people not to, you know, to sort of go out, you know, do their, not follow God. And people who, we have talked about, uh, people who, oh, I'm losing my English, my gosh. Uh, people who, uh, witnesses who testify falsely. So we're talking about, it's, it's a continuation of in this conversation of judges. Um, and one of, and the, and, and how somebody who, who testifies falsely has to be punished as, for what they were testifying for the other person to get punished by? Did that make sense in English? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because sometimes it does it. Sometimes it does it. It makes sense in my head. Okay. And then other people should learn from that. And the end of that whole section over here is that you we shouldn't you should uh, you know you have to you know the, the, an eye for that. But we don't. But the, we. It's sort of the follow up of how do we enact judgment? Saying you can't say oh that person just gets a pass and that person just gets a pass. But the even in biblical times they did not cut off. Definitely not in the Judaic. Uh, I'm not saying it never happened in, in ancient times because we all know that that totally did happen. Um, we don't cut off people's hands as payment of retribution for their stealing and for all different kinds of stuff. But it's definitely monetary payment and the way, they, the, way the courts would do it, it was how much would this person be uh, worth as a slave with a hand or without a hand. So if you accidentally cut off somebody's hand, 
and now you have to pay them as much money as they had been devalued as a slave. We're not going and cutting off your head, okay? But they're not paying the slave, they're paying, they're paying the slave owner, right? No, no, I'm talking about a person. Oh, okay. I'm talking about a person. Yeah. You, you, you hurt somebody else, you injure somebody else majorly. You, you cut off their hand, you poke out their eye, you whatever. So now what do we do? Do we now, so the Torah is saying an eye for an eye. So there are cultures where it's like, yeah. your turn, but that's not what Torah does. So if it was a slave though, and like somebody cut off a slave's hand, like the slave wouldn't get that monetary compensation, right? Slave is a whole yeah, which correct. Kind of slave? No, no, it, no, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's um, it's slaves are a whole. Different, okay. Yeah, no, no, correct because okay. because according to according to Jewish law, the slave owns nothing of owns nothing of their own, so they have no. Yeah. Okay. And so okay. this is a mitzvah. Which part of it is a mitzvah? It's the end of the place of judgment, meaning this specific thing. Not it's a mitzvah to judge in this way. It's a mitzvah to judge fairly and, and clearly. And, and, to, and what they're saying here for the, in this particular verse that you brought up, we're talking about an eye for an eye. It doesn't mean go cut off other people's eyes if they lost their eye, but it's definitely saying you can't just say, oops, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm devastated at what I did. Show me. Show me the money. Like, how, how sorry are you? And that's really what the conversation is. It's not enough to just apologize, but you have to somehow pay. You have to make some kind of payment. Now, we all know that no money in the world is going to pay for... Bring back your eye. Correct. But at the same time, there has to be some kind of, there has to be some kind of accountability. And Tara is saying that, in this case, monetary accountability is the best that we could do as human beings in an imperfect world. Emily... Chapter verse. Um, chapter 19. Mine's kind of in the middle of something. Okay. But verse 9. Verse 9. Chapter 19, verse 9. One second. Okay. Well, first it says you shall separate three cities, and then it continues. It's what I found, which is, right? When you observe this entire commandment to perform it, which I command you today to love Hashem your God and to walk Where are you? Chapter, verse 9. Chapter 19, verse 9? Yeah. We want to... Okay, 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 okay. Go on. Yep. Okay. Which I command you today to love Hashem your God and walk in His ways all the years, and you shall add three more cities to these three. Okay. What do we say? I mean, well, first it commands them to have three cities, and then to love Hashem your God and walk in His ways all the years. Okay, so two things. What are the three cities that we're talking about here? I don't know. Okay. Okay. Context. Context. Three cities. What are the cities here? These are cities of refuge. These are cities of refuge. There's a commandment. There's a commandment in the Torah to set up cities of refuge. If somebody murders somebody else inadvertently, we need to have a place for the murderer, the potential, well, the un, unjudged murderer. Murderer. Yeah. You need safety because in biblical times there was first degree first degree relatives had the right of revenge, and so. How many of us, you know, when we played hide and seek or thing, there was a safe base. There's a safe base. And if you're on safe base, you can't be tagged. Yes? Does this sound familiar? So the cities of refuge were, in fact, that safe base in, in, a, in a cultural context for people who committed murder. There were actually six that were set up. Three Moses set up on the other side of the Jordan. Three were set up in Israel proper. And three are supposed to be set up once Mashiach comes. And the thing which is very interesting about the cities of refuge is that they were evenly spaced across the whole country. And today, if we drive like in Montreal after the winter and there's full of potholes, as a random example, like we're catching, right? We don't, right? That happens in Montreal all the time because of the snow and the ice and everything um, and, and the salt that they put down. Um, we fetch. But in biblical times, there were no roads. So like that would have been amazing, right? But the cities of refuge, we actually had a commandment to have wide, clear, well-lit, no, that's not a word, well-lit, well-signed directions, not entrances, directions, city of refuge, city of refuge, city of refuge. So nobody has to go to the gas station and say, where's the closest city of refuge? There's only one reason you're asking to go to the city of refuge, okay? Because you killed somebody. So, like, A, we don't want to have that conversation going on. Oh, my gosh, you say you go to the city of refuge. But also to spare the person embarrassment to say, A, the quickest, safest way, the safest thing for them was to get their body into a city of refuge, and then they were 
they, from there, they were going to go to judgment, and they were going to get, there was a whole process of what was going to happen at that point, but, um, but they had to get to the city of refuge. So A, those streets were well, they were wide, they had an obligation to keep them clear, none of this like fallen trees in the middle that I can't get by, lots of signs, lots of weight, it has to be super, super clear how to get to the city of refuge. Um, Mushka, I'm going to get to you in a second. Um, I want to just finish one thing. In the calendar, the month of Elul that we're in is a, is a city of refuge. Okay, it's, a, it's in a time frame, it is a city of refuge. And what does it mean? This is a space where Hashem says, in this month, come back. Come back to me. Let's chat again. Let's have some coffee. Let's talk about how the year was. Let's hear how your life is going. How's our relationship doing? What do we need to tweak? How do we need to fix it up? It's specifically set up as a time, as we, you know, part of us, we look at it as you know, preparation for the high holidays, and da da da. But it's Hashem is saying, come, this is a safe space. We could talk about it. It's okay. We could, we'll figure this out. How do we renew this relationship? How do we fix up the stuff that we've done wrong? And, and that's, it's so, it's so amazing that the, the Parsha Shoftim is always, always read in the month of El. Always. Calendar things move around a little bit. It, it happens to be now at the beginning of the month of El, but it's always in the month of El because the month of El is for us a city of refuge. It's a time for us to take a deep breath and say, We're here, we're safe, we're okay, and now let's pay attention and do an accounting and say, What do I want to do? How am I really doing? Okay, like I'm, I'm in a good space, and now am I really in a good space? Like, what do I need to do, and how do I need to like look at it and, and pay attention? And this is really that space. So really, I want to say, in, in, the, in, the, in the divine providence of how things work out, this is our first day of learning, and we're just sort of together stepping into the city of refuge. It's the fifth day of the month of El. So we got, you know, 25 days ahead of us to, to sit in that space and to really learn in that space and to really engage in that space and say, okay, where am I going and how am I doing? And, and, and it's a personal question. It's not... How do we feel about this? This is like my conversation with myself and my soul and God and saying, okay, where do, where, where do I go with this? So I want to give us a shout out to take the time. Get the earphones out of your head. Go to a quiet space and think and write and figure it all out. Mushka, you had a question? Yeah, you said that when Mashiach comes, there's going to be three more. Does that mean that relatives are allowed to like kill the murderer? Like what's the reason for that? There's a very interesting conversation about why would you need a city of refuge, city of refuge, when Mashiach comes. If the Mashiach is a time of ultimate peace and no jealousy and no, death, who's running to a city of refuge? Like, who's killing anybody? Right? What, what's going on? Like, who's right? It's if, if if there's no war, there's no jealousy, there's no competition. Who's killing anybody? So who's going to a city of refuge? Um, and and Hasidus has a longer conversation about how things work out. Sorry, um, uh, from a spiritual and emotional place, not so much a physical. I killed somebody, and therefore I need to go into the city of refuge. But this place of the parts that we have killed, and how do we repair them? Oh, and that so place, how, whether it's in ourselves or the damage that we've done, and how do we do that repair? So it's not there, again. There's Lots of conversation about what's going to happen when Shriach comes, and we're really excited to wait and see, you know, please God, it should be in our lifetime to be able to see that. Um, what does it actually look like? So we don't really know, but there's different opinions of what's going to happen. Is it the regular world order? Is it going to be, you know, miraculous, wonderful, whatever. There's different stages, though. Perhaps at some stage it's necessary, another stage it's not, another stage it's not necessary. But Hasidus definitely talks about the idea of the city of, re- excuse me, of the city of refuge being this place of, holding us together and re, re, doing the healing, which is what the City of Refuge does, on a spiritual level, not so much on a, oh, we killed somebody level. Where are we up to? Go. Um, Alicia. Oh, yeah. Chapter verse. Um, chapter 23, verse uh, 16. Wait one second. Chapter. Uh, you, moved, you moved into the next chapter, the next book, into the oh, next Parsha. Is that not, oh, okay. I didn't know that. So come back, you'll come, we'll come back to you, but pick one in our Torah portion. It goes till chapter 21, 
something, 18. 18. Okay, we're going to get back to you, Alicia. Shalamas. What are you going by? Shula? Yeah. Okay. So, chapter 20, verse 10. Chapter 20, verse 10. Oh. When you near a city to do a battle against it, you are to offer peace. Should it respond peace and open for you, then all the people found in it will become your prayers or the tribute and your servants. Right. So, when we. There, the question is, okay, in Torah, we have two kinds of wars. All war is terrible. That's my preface, right? But we have two kinds of wars. One is called a milchemet reshut. It's like a war that you are allowed to go to. A king decides a war of expansion, a war of different kinds of reasons that a, a, we're going to choose to have this war. Okay? There's another kind of war that's called a milchemet mitzvah, a war of, like, that God commands us to do. For example... Uh, wiping out the the, the Amalek, the, uh, you know, certain nations. They don't exist anymore. If you go to court and you say, if Margaret said I could kill them because they're Amalek, I'm not going to come to your defense. <laughs> so uh, certain wars, uh, defensive wars, um, to protect the people, those are considered uh, mitzvah wars. Um, and the rules are different. And here we're talking about a war that the king decides, whether for expansion or for whatever reasons that he's, you know, we're going to have a war. The first thing you need to do is that you need to offer peace. You need to say, we're coming, and the first stage is not that we fight. Uh, the first stage is that we offer peace. And the question is then, what happens if they say no? If they say no, then, and you have a war, and then you end up, you know, with that, what are you, you're like, you're kind of recreated, like, it's, a, it's, the, it's an endless cycle. Um, then that's a different conversation. But if they say yes, you know what, we'd rather be under your protection, which is essentially what they're doing when they make peace with you, than... Whatever, taxes and stuff like that. What? It could be. It could be. It could be. There's there's many many reasons that it could possibly happen. But yes, the first thing we need to do is we need to offer peace. But in a, a but in the wars when they're coming into the land of Israel, the first time with Joshua, um, once they got to the land of Israel, they were not allowed to offer peace anymore. They could only offer peace to the inhabitants before they got to the land of Israel. When they're on the other side of the Jordan River, they could send emissaries and say, "Hey guys." We're coming. Do you want to play? The nation did, right? They actually did that. Yeah. yeah. So back and forth, and was it? But you, once they got to the land of Israel, they were not allowed to offer peace. Anybody who stayed at that point, who had not yet made a peace treaty with them, they had to go to war with them. Okay. Alexa, give us a chapter and verse. Chapter eighteen, verse thirteen. Eighteen thirteen. This against fortune telling. It says, do not kill over to the future, but be simple-hearted with God and your God. Right. So we, were, we had, uh, Alexa raised this question, does that mean this actually works? Right. So I will say that the horoscopes in the newspaper, probably not so real. But, uh, but there is a prohibition here, and it's part of a, of a slew of prohibitions against Canaanite behavior, lots of idolatry behavior, um, and this specifically is different kinds of fortune-telling, soothsaying, uh, predictions. Um, and the reason Torah prohibits them is not because they don't work. But God's God says, that's not your avenue. That's not the way you channel our relationship. That's not our, that's not our conversation. Now, I will say that lots of stuff that's going on today, fortune-telling and predictions and blah, 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 it's like body language. It's not actually. Um, it's not actually like channeling real truths. Um, but the fact that something works doesn't make it holy. And if it's not holy, if God doesn't say this is a medium for you to use, then we can't use it. So, for example, one could argue, why go to a doctor? God made me sick. Let me be sick. Like, that was his choice for me to be sick, so I'm going to just, like, ride this one out and whatever happens, happens, right? But the Torah actually gives us a commandment, some places, not in this part, these parishes, but someplace else, there is an actual obligation for a healer to heal and for us to get healing. Now, we could argue what that healing looks like, but the obligation to take care of your health and get healing help is a biblical prohibition, sorry, is a biblical commandment, as opposed to saying, the soothsayers and all their little stuff that they do, 
And it's not because it's not, not, not because it doesn't work, but because it's not your channel to God. And that's, that's the important distinction over here. But yes, there is, there, in biblical times, today, in, in, you don't find so much in Western countries, but you do find a lot of like Asian, yeah. India, you find lots of stuff that works. You're like, therefore it must be the right thing. But that's not the correlation. Just because it works doesn't mean it's the right thing. Um, I, don't, I don't want this to like go off topic, but you were speaking about horoscopes. Is there a Jewish concept of something? Zodiac, absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. How does that like kind of really exist? I don't know enough about it to speak intelligently. Gila does. Gila knows more about it. She's not coming for two weeks, but her production she's making a wedding. Um, we have a book someplace in this library. It's called Above the Zodiac. Um, there is a conversation about how Jews and, and Zodiac work together. If you don't find it here, I might have it in my house. You're welcome to come to my house and read it. You cannot take it out of my house. We are very, very protective about our books. You need to, we don't, we don't give out our books. But you're welcome to read it in our house. Um, and there is, a whole, there is a whole thing. In fact, part of the whole conversation of 12 months comes from Kabbalah that says that the world was built on 12 axes, which are the constellations. So there is definitely a Jewish thing, but, but, and here's the thing. Talmud also tells us, Ein mazal Yisrael, that Jewish people are not bound by any kind of... Constellation. What, <laughs> whatever the stars say, like, that's all nice and fine, but we aren't bound by that. Doesn't mean, again, doesn't mean that it's not true, doesn't mean it doesn't work, it just means that's not our language and that's not necessarily how it speaks to us. So just because something is written in the stars doesn't mean we throw up our hands and say, oh, I, I can't do anything about this. We can always do something about it. That is absolutely 100% true. We always have free will when it has to do with anything that has to do with our relationship with God, mitzvahs, ability. We always have free will. So just because in the stars it says X, Y, and Z doesn't mean that we are actually true about that. We're going to move quickly because I'm taking the time. I'm sorry. Go. Mushka, chapter verse. Chapter 18, verse 9. When you come back to the land your God gives you, you shall not learn to act according to the abominations of those nations. Exactly. So when the, the, remember, Moses is at the banks of the Jordan River. He's, he's give, giving the people, you know, charge to go forward. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. The Torah is going to then, the next bunch of verses are going to enumerate lots, yeah, of, so lots of Canaanite behavior that you should not do. And I would like to say that the place of copying Canaanite behavior is something that we, we, we need to think about. How many of the things that we do, do we do because they are truly reflect our values? And how much of it is cultural values that are not ours? And we've just adopted Canaanite values and Canaanite behavior. Okay, they're not Canaanites anymore. The Canaanites are long gone. But I think it's like such an important something to think about of... You know? But it's with everything, not just like Canaanite behaviors. Correct. We're not allowed to copy any of the other nations or religions. If it's like not something we want to participate in, we want to trend. Exactly. So I'm saying, like, is there a biblical prohibition? I'm going to, you know, I'm not saying this is Trump. I'm right, this is a que- there's a question mark at the end of this. Is there a biblical prohibition against following current fashion? No. It's, it's not a biblical prohibition. No, it's not. No, but. The question that we have to ask ourselves is an emotional question, not a practical. Exactly. The question, not know, is it a mitzvah or is it not a mitzvah that I'm doing, but is this the direction I want to go? Am I leading or am I following? And that's a very important question that we need to ask ourselves. Same thing with piercings. With everything, with everything, with everything, with everything. It's it's, it's a very important uh, mind check for ourselves. Elior, chapter verse. Okay, 17 verse. Huh? 17 verse 21. There's no 1721. Sorry. Because we share, we found this and that one. 16, 16. 16, go. 1621. Yeah. You shall not plan for yourself the last three. And three near the altar of Hashem, your God that you shall make yourself, and you shall not write for yourself the pillar which Hashem your God. Right. Okay. So 
Your question or your comment about it? Uh, what? Two things. What, what is it? It's about like not to like eat a lot with things and all that stuff. Okay. It's very referred to what Alexa said also. Okay, we're back. To, we're back here. We're back to our Canaanite practices. The first thing is that they're telling us is that we cannot plant an Asherah tree. It's a specific tree that was used for worship. It also continues and says you cannot plant any trees next to the altar, which means if you ever look at the top of the Temple Mount in biblical times, there's no landscaping going on over there. Okay? There's just God. Um, so there's two things. There's One is a specific tree that was used for worship, and the other one is a tree that we have next to the altar. Wait, is there a reason for that? Or which part? For right now, we're not going to go. Gonna, for right now, we're not going to go into this. Okay, I'm going to. I'm going to just wrap up because we're definitely into a lot of overtime, and I apologize, but I think it was very interesting. So, you guys had a lot of. You brought, you brought a lot of stuff to the table. Um, we're going to come back to Alicia one second. I just want to. Yeah, going to give us something. I guess. I mean, I don't. I kind of don't understand some of it, but like. Okay. Do you want to give us one? Sure. Okay. Um, Give me chapter and verse. Oh, okay. 19. Uh-huh. Um, verse 14, I think. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, it's like preventing boundaries uh, or preserving them. Exactly. You're not allowed to steal somebody else's property. Shut up. So you, can't move, you can't move the markers, right? Do you remember like the Wild West and all the stuff that was going on and people were moving the markers and saying it's a biblical prohibition against moving uh, the markers that mark off your neighbor's Territory, and I'm going to add here, even if nobody knows. Less than you can't expand, like you can't make. You can't steal their. So it's it's saying you can't steal it. You could buy it from them, but you, you can't, can't just say, "Oh, that's mine. My border goes till here." Oh, but that was your. No, 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 no. This is my border. It's always been my border. No, that you're not. That's called stealing. Okay, so that's here, and specifically with moving boundaries, it's a, it's a, speci- a specific prohibition. Thank you for getting Alicia back into the picture. Okay, um, I want to fill, finish up over here and give us all a blessing. And, and we're going to talk about for a second, it talks about two different things. It says not to plant a tree next to a mizbeach. And it also says not to make a matseva. And, the, and Rashi asks, what's the difference between a, a mizbeach and a matseva? Huh? What's a matseva? Okay, so a matseva is a monument and a mizbeach is an altar. Okay, so what's the difference? So Rashi says a matseva, a monument is one stone, one big stone, boom. Not allowed to do that. A mizbeach, an altar, is made up of little stones. So, mizbeach, yes. Matseva, no. Um, an altar, yes. And a monument, no. Um, and the sages go into the whole conversation, whatever. But I want to pull it down for a second here. Who cares? Who cares? What, what, what's the difference? What's the, what's the big deal? Right? So, the... the, the like more contemporary rabbis who talk about the drush, what do we learn from this? They talk about the idea of a matseva, one stone. What does one stone represent? Solitude. Hmm? Solitude. solitude. Could be solitude. One identity. One identity. And one also this place. One solid unit. This is who I am. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. I don't change, I don't grow, I don't develop. This is me. That is a matseba. That is a that is a monument. And God's like, and they're like, that's not so cool. What's a matse- what's a mizbeach? What's an altar? When we take all the different parts of us and we say all of this can be used as a base for Hashem, all of this can be used for me to come closer to Hashem. I'm not, I'm constantly learning and I'm constantly growing and I'm constantly adding stones to my altar. I'm not just, yada, I did this, I'm done, forget it. I'm. Now, for anybody who has uh, some kind of Jewish background, where do we know the word matseva from? Anybody to know? find, like matseva. Motseva is to find. But the word matseva specifically, does anybody know where in Jewish Culture, for lack of a better word, do we have a matseva today? The Hebrew, what? Oh, I don't know. I was just thinking centuries. Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> we got a winner here. A tombstone in Hebrew is called a matseva. And a matseva, that place of I am finished, that is the end of life. 
When you, you say, this is who I am, this is the sum total of my life, I am done, that's a matzeva, that's not good. When we say, when we're young and we're alive and we're vibrant and we can learn and we say, this is who I am, hello? You're not in a cemetery, you're alive, let's grow, let's do, let's change something. In a, in a cemetery, like, this is the end of your life, it's a matzeva. And there's another Jewish custom, if anybody knows, when you go to visit a cemetery, what do we put a stone? Where do we put the stone? On the top of the matzeva. Because what are we who are coming to visit somebody coming to say? Your life is over. You're right. You can't do anymore. You can't grow anymore. But we can grow for you. We can do mitzvahs for you. We can add. And when we live in your path, or we do things in your honor or in your memory, you get it, you get it, you, you benefit as well. I want to give us a bracha. We're here, we're starting our journey into learning and into discovery, and it's such a powerful time, and there's so much going on, and I want to give us a bracha, just like we had the tree, that we have the least glamorous part of the tree, that we work hard to put down roots that are going to be strong and that are going to nourish us and help us build and help us grow, that even when things are yuck and bleary and now we're in the middle of a heat wave, we can't even imagine like <laughs> being cold and miserable, but those roots will nourish us whenever we are and wherever we are. And this is my bracha that we use this time as we're getting ready for the new year, new, begin, new start of a semester, new years coming up ahead, put down those roots, put something down that says, who am I, where am I, how do I have my grasp in this world with myself, with the people around me, with God. Have an awesome rest of the day and amazing Shabbos. Thank you. Thank you.